Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. The best athletes don't just play the game, they change it. When it comes to investing, GameBridge is doing the same. Their online platform does things differently because it's designed to put you in charge of growing your own savings. It's intuitive, it's easy, and best of all, it's on your terms. No wonder GameBridge has earned the trust of 40% repeat customers. It's a better way to invest because it's investing your way. Get started today with as little as $1,000 at GameBridge.io. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. Winter is coming. Heavy rain, sleet, snow, and ice. Are your tires up for the challenge? In the season's worst conditions, winter tires are a game changer. They elevate traction, control, and confidence. They sell only the best, like the full line of Kumo tires. Go to TireRack.com sports. Tell them what you drive. Your tires will ship fast and free to your one of over 10,000 recommended installers. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. This is the best of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis on Fox Sports Radio. Bringing in Dan Orlovsky. Let's do a little bit of a bridge between college basketball and the NFL, Dan. I appreciate you getting up early with us, but I'm going to start you with this question. You went to UConn. What happened to your boys in basketball? Oh, man, this is a tough one to start off with. It's sad to see. You know, when I was there... I was actually there one of the years that the men and the women won the national title in 04 together. So it's tough to see where they are right now. I think a big deal is the conference, you know, the conference that they're in. And so Jim Calhoun got to walk into living rooms recruiting and say, hey, do you want to go play Syracuse at the Garden? You know, now Kevin Ali has to go, do you want to go play Tulsa down in Tulsa? So yeah, it's just, uh, you know, the conference is a big deal. And, and hopefully something happens here, you know, in the next couple of years where there's some kind of realignment. Uh, now, you played in the NFL for a long time. You just retired in the fall of last year. And I was looking over your uh, your stats as uh, as I got ready to have you on for the first time. I heard you were on uh, when I was on vacation, and fantastic. We got great feedback on it, so I appreciate you coming on with us again. You played for a long time in the, in the NFL. You started 12 games in about 10 years, uh, if I'm doing my math correct. What was that like? I mean, because I can't even imagine – how many big hits you actually took over 12 years, you have to be like one of the healthiest guys to ever have the longevity that you have in NFL history, right? I mean, to have been in the in the league for as long as you have, do you wake up with aches and pains, or are you like, man, I, I feel perfect for as many years as I actually played in the NFL. I just never took that many hits. Or do you feel it even from only 12 games and the practice and everything else? Yeah, I feel it a little bit, you know, not nearly as much. You know, a good friend of mine is a dude named Matt Schaub who's still playing, 
He's the backup in Atlanta, and he's probably started 100 games, 120 games, something like that. And, you know, I, I wake up and I feel it, but it's mainly from just the grind of, you know, I've been playing football and kind of training for football since I was 10 or 11 years old. So 20-plus years of kind of wear and tear in my body with that stuff. But, you know, I, I know in comparison to, you know, like the guy I mentioned, Matt Schaub, who he's got much more, you know, aches and pains waking up in, in the morning. I think the hardest thing for me was just having to, you know, in season go through that physical grind of just practice and practice and practice and never have the chance to take advantage of, you know, you guys, a lot of guys grind through that pain because they love the opportunity to play and, you know, get it out of their, you know, the competitive nature out of their system on Sundays. I never really had that that opportunity to open up. So you had, it was more of a mental grind for me. It was like, okay, I have to continue this groundhog day over and over and over. Speaking of a mental grind, am I correct that you have, is it triplets? I have six-year-old triplets. Yeah, man. Oh my God. So I have, so I've got three boys and I think you have boys too, right? I've got three boys who are 10, seven and three. So I can imagine what it's like to have, but I can't even imagine what it's like to have three at the same time. What was that like? I mean, what was it like to have triple? I mean, when you look back on it now, was it total chaos? Was I have no idea, but I think there's probably a lot of people out there listening right now that when they hear that, they're like, oh, my God, I just can't imagine ever having done this. Oh, pure insanity. I mean, for the first year, it was just pure insanity. I mean, remember, I don't know – you know, for the first year, my wife and I never got longer than like a two and a half hour stretch of sleep because it's not like one of us could just get up and do, you know, any kind of feeding or whatnot because we were out hands. Yeah. We didn't have enough hands. So, you know, I think just we that was such a blur. And then, you know, I try to tell people the amount of diapers we would go through a day. I think we went through like 45 diapers oh my a God. day, you know, early <laughs> on. It was just absolute... And we were just, you know, hanging on. We would try to get to 7.30 at night with a glass of wine and, and, you know, cross our fingers. So it was nuts. You know, we just got back from Disney World last night. We decided to take our triplet boys to Disney World. We were hopping on a plane in Orlando at like 10 o'clock last night. And my kids are running around the airport like it's, you know, the NBA All-Star game. And I'm just sitting there going, (laughs) what is going on right now? So I, I was on a Disney cruise. That's where I was when you came in and you came on with uh, with Jason Martin and Jeff Schwartz as, as a guest. What was how many days were you at Disney and how how was that going with uh, what are they first graders or whatever? I guess probably at six years old. What was that experience like? I mean, was it a total zoo? Yeah, it was a blast. You know, I mean, we were there for four days. You know, we stayed at the beach club, so we need we if we needed a break, we could just pop over to the the pool that they have, which is insane down there. It's awesome and whatnot, but. You know, l- luckily my wife has got a pretty good handle on Disney, and so we would bring a backpack full of snacks, and if we got into a long line, it would just be like, here, have some goldfish or something, and <laughs> held them over for some time. You know, it was, it was, for the most part, they were good, but, you know, getting, you know, hitting the wall last night, airport, and then on the plane was, was a, we were, we were that family that you could watch and entertain yourselves with. So what would be your power ranking of the parks? I mean, I think you got to go Magic Kingdom 1. Do you agree? How, did, how would you break them down if you were giving advice to somebody who was going to Disney with their kids? Yeah, Magic Kingdom's your five-tool player. You know, you could do it all there. It's, it's, it's the best place. You, no matter morning or night, you could hit it all. I think my second favorite is probably Epcot just because you can get a good bang for your buck with all the rides for kids, but the adults can still have, you know, enjoy themselves walking around the world and seeing some cool stuff. Third would be MGM or Hollywood studios. I guess they call it nowadays just because toy story ride and, 
you know, the rocket roller coaster tower terror combo. And then the fourth, we don't really actually do Animal Kingdom that much. Our kids probably can't get on a bunch of rides there, and I can't stand the Disney buses, so I refuse to get on the buses that much. <laughs> We're talking with Dan Orlovsky, 12-year NFL veteran uh, here. All right, let's pivot into the NFL. Uh, As you look at the available quarterbacks, I want to start with Kirk Cousins. If you were giving Cousins advice and you were representing him as his agent, would you say the Vikings is the best job he can take or not? Where would you tell him to go? Oh, yeah, I'm I'm telling him dead sprint into Minnesota if the money's even remotely close to each other for a couple of reasons. You know, one, Kirk's still relatively young, and the cap is only going to go up. And so the big thing is can you still go – you know, find a place that you can be successful over the next three years, four years, and set yourself up for another deal with the cap growing because, you know, you've gone through this tumultuous experience in Washington. We didn't sign in Washington for those specific reasons. Now let's take advantage and go to a place that gives him structure and stability, but also he's got guys to throw to. I mean, he's got Thielen Diggs or the top-rated combo receivers in the NFL last year. You know, he's got a, a head coach who's going to be there. He's got a new hot coordinator, and then he's got a defense that, you know, you don't have to go be Superman every Sunday. You don't have to go score 30 points a week. That's such a big deal for quarterbacks to to not have that pressure of, oh, I have to go be perfect. So I think it's a dead sprint to Minnesota if the money is even in the same ballpark because I think it gives him the best chance of success to get a next deal. I think that's great advice for him. What about the Cleveland Browns? Do you buy into A.J. McCarron as potentially being a good enough selection to not need to go draft a quarterback themselves, or are you apprehensive on A.J. McCarron and you would tell the Browns, go ahead and go into the quarterback draft instead of maybe getting A.J. McCarron and taking Saquon Barkley number one overall and maybe Minka Fitzpatrick at four? What would you suggest if you were advising the, the, the Cleveland Browns? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I watched every A.J. McCarron clip that he's had in the NFL, regular season and preseason and postseason, that one start this past weekend, and I came away more impressed than I went into it. You know, he looks like a guy who completely understands what's going on with his offensive play call and what the defense is giving to him and how to attack it. My thing would be this. It's a a two-sided answer because – if you're McCarron, you want to go to Cleveland because they have such a need and a situation for it, and you've got Hugh Jackson who you've got comfort level with, but you also don't want to go to Cleveland because there's a good chance they're going to draft somebody early, and they just drafted Deshaun Kaiser in the second round last year. So I think if you're the Browns and it's been such a bad situation, you try to figure out a way where you have it both happen. I think you try and sign McCarron and give him a deal that, you know, depending on what his market is, is somewhat fair to that you know, step below the Blake Borders deal type thing. And then I think you try to find, you know, that, that quarterback that you like with the first or fourth pick. You know, maybe you feel a little bit better about taking Barkley at one if you do have McCarron. But I was impressed with McCarron. But I think with your, if you're the Browns, you got to take as many swings at this as you can because it's a very real, real situation for them. They're, they're no longer can they continue to try to play the cute game and wait and figure out the, the backdoor way to make it happen at that position. We're talking to Dan Orlovsky, 12-year NFL veteran quarterback, played at UConn in uh, undergrad. He is at Dan Orlovsky7 on Twitter. Let's go into the available quarterbacks this year in the draft, Dan. You're breaking it down really well. It's fantastic. You, I bet, have watched a lot of these guys play their games. You may have watched some of the film from the Senior Bowl, everything else. How would you assess and rank the available quarterbacks out there for this year's NFL draft? 
Yeah, I have Darnold at one. You know, I really like Sam Darnold's game, and I'm still trying to find out or find a reason why somebody needs to tell me why I shouldn't like it. You know, I think that if you look at his game, he reminds me of like a Ben Roethlisberger and Romo combo. You know, I call it like this. He's He's got this magical sloppiness to him where everything he does just looks sloppy, even the good stuff and then the bad stuff. And so that's stuff that you can't coach, though. It's just you're born with this talent, and I – I think that's what separates him. People talk about the turnovers. The turnovers for me, turnovers happen for so many different reasons. And if you look at other guys, I mean, Romo had 16 turnovers of last year. Matt Ryan coming out of BC had 19. Russell Wilson had 14 his junior year. So, like, the the turnovers aren't a huge deal to me because I can coach you out of that stuff and I can scheme you out of that stuff and put players around you. So I, I do like Darnold's one. I like Josh Rosen's game. I really do. But Baker Mayfield, to me, is a guy that kind of has been really, really, really rising. He's almost having that Philip Rivers-type rise that happened so long ago. You know, if you watch Baker, you know, I look, the quarterback position is such a big deal. It's so unique to everything else because there's only 32 of them. And it's like they're billion-dollar companies, and you have to have a guy who can stand at the front of your company fearlessly and lead it and, and make that company different than all the other 32, 31 others. And I think Baker's got that about him. I love his, obviously, everyone loves his competitive character. The maturity questions that come up aren't a big deal to me because the only way I ever matured was because I got to watch somebody in front of me. I got to learn from somebody. So, you know, I think he needs somebody in front of him that can come help him along. It's not, is he mature enough, but does he want to be mature? Does he want to mature a little bit off the field? Because his talent on the field, watching him throw the football is unique it's different you know when he throws he screws his back foot into the ground similar to John Elway how he used to do it so I have Mayfield kind of as my my second guy if you want to call it then Josh Rosen is the most NFL ready accuracy wise guy he's got the most real NFL accuracy when I say that you know the ball gets put on the right shoulder instead of the left shoulder it gets put out in front of the receiver instead of on his back hip so I like his game a bunch and then Lamar Jackson's that guy that he's got so much good, but such a unique bad that you have to spend time fixing him. You Is he worth your investment? It's like the stock market. It depends on how risky you want to get because he does need time and he needs some coaching with his, his base when he throws the ball, but you're not going to find many humans on the planet, you know, talented like he, like he can be at the, the quarterback position. So I think he's worth an investment of a pick if you've got a situation that you're comfortable with at that position. What about Josh Allen? Are you not a believer in Allen, or uh, or is there something that, that kind of red flags him to you? Yeah, I mean, I think in the NFL, in a lot of different sports, you try to find, you know, things from the past or things from history that, you know, you not compare, but you can, you know, kind of relate it to. And I just try to – I struggle with, okay, a guy who – didn't dominate at his position at a small school. I mean, if you look at all the guys that came from smaller schools that went on to play quarterback in the NFL, Steve McNair and Dante Culpepper and Big Ben and Flacco and Wentz and, you know, there's other guys. They all dominated at that level because they were just far and away the best player. I mean, total domination. I've never, I haven't seen that out of Josh Allen. So that makes me go, why, why was there no domination? You can't tell me the people around him because then those other guys that I just mentioned had the similar guys. So that's a concern of mine. And then, you know, I, I struggled to find a guy that had some kind of head-scratching, eyebrow-raising accuracy, accuracy issues in college, and they got better in the NFL. I mean, you just 
it's rare that someone becomes more accurate when they go to the NFL because it's harder. It's, it's the defenses are better. The windows are smaller. And so for me, that's the big concern is I, I just can't tap into somebody from the past and go, well, that, that, that shows me that it can get done. And I don't, you know, when people say he could throw the ball a mile, I don't care. The football field's a hundred yards. So there's so much more to that position than just being able to throw the ball far and hard. We're talking to uh, Dan Orlovsky at D uh, Dan Orlovsky seven on Twitter, 12 year NFL veteran. That's a really good breakdown of all of the available candidates out there. There's a lot of discussion right now about questions that guys may or may not have been asked at the NFL combine. Did you get grilled? I, I'm curious as a guy, what the response was, what the vibe was like. You were trying to make sure you got drafted. I'm sure you were as buttoned up as you could possibly be in these interviews. But did you get grilled at all? Were there questions you weren't anticipating when you went through that process? Yeah, I mean, none of them stand out to me. I mean, I remember like getting asked like what kind of mixed drink you would be and whatnot and, and, yeah. and stuff like that. I never got the questions that some you know some guys are getting nowadays. My no, my most unique experience was I sat down in my little 15 minute interview with the Saints kind of like that speed dating interview that they have and Jim Hazlitt was the head coach and I remember sitting across from the table from him the time started and he sat there for 15 minutes looked me dead in my eye and didn't say a single word and I was a kid so I just sat there like what do I do and Hazlitt just stared at me and so that's my <laughs> most unique I mean no question asked. 15, kind of straight, me. I didn't, 15 straight minutes of just staring at you man 15 minutes straight and he did not he did not say a single word to me. And again, I was like, is this a test? Am I wasting his time? What's going on? So, uh, you know, I didn't get, I didn't get the unique questions that some, some of those guys are getting nowadays. That's my kind of combine story that, that is in, in that kind of world. That's an unbelievable story. I just can't even imagine looking into somebody for 15 minutes. Like that's a long time to just sit there and not say anything at all. it what was do you, so awkward. Do you, did you ever find out what he was going for there? Do you even have any idea now? Have you ever talked to him since? No, but the unique thing is I was drafted in the fifth round, and the Saints drafted, I think, like a pick or two behind me, and they took a guy named Adrian McPherson out of Florida State, another quarterback. Yes. They were pl- I had found out they were planning on drafting me with that pick. So even though you had the 15-minute so you passed somehow. Like Jim Haslett was like, this is a guy I can roll with. Yeah. Never got the opportunity to ever ask him, like, hey, what was that about or whatnot? But that was, it was a, that was my combine kind of like, you know, experience that, that made you kind of shake your head or, or scratch your head in that regard. That is awesome. Dan Orlovsky7 uh, on Twitter. Um, last question for you, and I appreciate you getting up early with us, especially after uh, the long uh, trip from Disney and everything else late, late last night. Do you think that there is any way that you can justify if you are a GM, if you are advising a team, taking Saquon Barkley if you are the Browns. In other words, we've seen the last couple of years what Ezekiel Elliott meant for Dak Prescott. We saw what Leonard Fournette meant for uh, for Blake Bortles. We even saw what Alvin Kamara could mean for a first ballot Hall of Famer like Drew Brees. Is there any way that if you're the Browns, you can look at Saquon Barkley and say, screw it, we think he's so good that we would take him even though we need a quarterback as well? No, I don't think there, I don't think there's any way that you can do that. And that has nothing to do with Saquon Barkley. I think he's going to be an incredibly impactful player. But there's for those examples that you just mentioned, like Zeke and, and Fournette and Kamara, you know, they had other places, other pieces in place that helped them be parts of that team, essentially. Really good offensive lines that they had invested in 
defenses that were pretty good. Obviously, Dallas hits on Dak, so they still hit on the quarterback. It wasn't like they got Zeke and they were playing with, you know, some some guy at the quarterback position that had some real big issues. I mean, they hit on Dak, and he had an incredible rookie season. So, you know, I think it, I, I look at it like this. Adrian Peterson went to the Vikings years ago, and he was by far the best back in the NFL, and, and similar to a Barkley, just freak athletically. But the Vikings were still had back, held back. Even though they were a pretty good team, they had some pretty good pieces, they had this back that was incredible, they still didn't do anything with it because they needed the quarterback position. And you need that position in the NFL to win or to have a chance to win on a consistent basis. And I think the Browns are in such a situation where you know, they tried to get Q, and they took Brandon Whedon a little bit later in the, the first round, and then they had Manziel a little bit later, and they made some, you know, they've tried to kind of like, you know, get cute with it and, you know, get the two-for-one deal. Don't get cute with this pick. If you have the opportunity to take the quarterback that you like, that you think can change your franchise, you absolutely do it. Because Saquon Barkley, for as good as he is, Will not he's not going to change your franchise for the next decade. He's going to make it a lot better, but he's not going to change it. Again, the NFL, you need CEOs at the quarterback position. Not the running back position, the quarterback position. And Cleveland needs to find their CEO immediately. Outstanding stuff. Dan Orlovsky, go follow him on Twitter, at Dan Orlovsky7. Thank him for getting up early with us. We'll definitely talk to you again soon, my man. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. Got an awesome guest for you here, Charles Davis. And I got to tell you, I texted him this as well. My boys, so I've got a fourth grader and a first grader, and this year they have become obsessed with the Madden football game. They'll play it all the time. And I think I, I read that you were going to be the voice of Madden but I got to tell you, it's such a weird experience as you're walking through. And this happens sometimes in the old like uh, college football game, too, because I got to know Kirk Herbstreet a little bit. But when you know the person who's calling the game and you hear them on the video game, it's so much stranger to me than hearing them actually call a game, which you're kind of used to. Charles Davis, he's at Fox Sports, NFL Network, and he's the voice of Madden. Have you started to meet like younger kids who hear your voice and they're like, wait a minute, like you're out at Starbucks getting a coffee or you're out and they just hear your voice and they may not recognize your face, but they say, wait a minute, you're the Madden guy. Has that started to happen to you yet? Hey, good morning, Clay. You know, actually what's happening is the older person, right? The, the dad or yeah. older brother or someone will, under, will, will occasionally recognize me and then tell the younger ones, and the younger ones are like, oh, okay. And then they go right back to what they're doing. <laughs> but but, but it, is, it is fun. It's, 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 a, it's a rush. And I've told people this many times, and it's still true. My, our, our son is 20 now. And when we got the gig, the best reaction I ever got about anything I've ever done that he's been aware of was the Madden game. Didn't matter if we've called BCS national championships, you know. Yes. You know, NFL football, the Madden game sent him over the top, and then his, his friends who he's had most of his life, they start showing up at the house more in the immediate <laughs> aftermath. And I was like, I've known you guys since you were five. What's, what's all this? Bad, bad. So it, it was a big, big deal for, for people who play the game, and fortunate to be a part of it, Clay. Very fortunate. 
Uh, we're talking to Charles Davis. He is at CFD22 20, uh, on Twitter, at CFD22. Go say hi to him. Thank him for getting up early with us, joining us here on Outkick the Coverage. Before we get into football talk, really, uh, I know that you are a University of Tennessee graduate, and it's been a long time since the University of Tennessee has won a title in a major men's sport like basketball or football. How much have you enjoyed watching the Vols this year and uh, the job that Rick Barnes has done? It's been a blast, and it started for me when they beat Purdue. Yeah, you remember in in, the, in one of those preseason tournaments. Yes, I remember. I walked in the room, and they were playing. And I'm watching, and also what? Because I knew Purdue was going to be very good this year, and I know we were picked what 13th in the preseason, and I just didn't have high expectations. Now you know Mike Keith, the voice of the Tennessee Titans. He's also a fellow Vol. And Mike had told me in preseason, he said, I think they're going to be better than what people think. And I said, are you just being optimistic? Or No, 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 no. He said, I think they're going to be better than what people think. And so Mike had it early. I didn't have it at all. But it's been an absolute blast and a kick. And I just, what really gives me a kick is not only did Tennessee win it, but they tied with Auburn with Bruce Pearl, our former coach, who, you know, Tennessee fans have pined for ever since he had to, had to leave. And then how about this way the season started for Bruce Pearl and Auburn? You know, they lost to a Division II team in an exhibition game and then ended up winning the SEC. And also, as you remember, with all the NCAA stuff and what have you, they got on Bruce early, and Bruce was defiant about the whole thing. And now here he is, a co-SEC champ. So it's been a strange year in the SEC, but a very rewarding one if you wear Tennessee orange or Auburn orange. There's no doubt about that. We're talking to Charles Davis at CFD22 on Twitter. Go tell him hi. All right, so you just came back from the NFL Combine. You guys do an incredible job covering that, breaking down all of it. I I find myself just addicted to it. I'll sit and I'll put it on the NFL Network, and I'll see what these guys are doing in their Combine drills. And I want to start, obviously, it's not going to shock you, at the quarterback position did you see there? Were you disappointed Sam Darnold didn't throw? What did you think of the drama surrounding Lamar Jackson? When you left, what did you think? Had any of your impressions changed of the top guys in the quarterback position? Great questions. I'll start with the drama with Lamar Jackson. Um, Not surprised at all that the drama was there. We still haven't totally cleared every hurdle with all of that. But I also don't think it's as cut and dried as it used to be and you know and i'll just go ahead and get to it clay there's no sense in me talking code right black quarterback athletic switching to another position we're well past that all right people want quarterbacks who can play lamar jackson's accuracy is is up for debate just as we if we're talking josh allen's accuracy we're talking lamar allen's act lamar jackson's accuracy but, of course, him being a black quarterback now changes the dynamic of the conversation. Everybody's leaping at this and that and everything else. I thought Bill Polian took some unnecessary grief. I heard his entire interview. You know, he said, I would move him to wide receiver with his general manager's cap on. Everybody took that to a totally different level. At the end of the conversation, you know what Bill said, Clay? He said, but God, if he wants to be a quarterback, he should go and try and be a quarterback. I just think he'd be a dynamite wide receiver, and I wouldn't want to wait to make the switch. So I thought he took some unnecessary grief on that one. But by the time it's all said and done, I think he made his statement he wants to be a quarterback, and he should be. And that's why he didn't run or jump or do anything else at the combine. That was a silent message. Yeah. Judge me as a thrower. 
I'm glad you brought that up. Now, you also, in addition, you mentioned calling the college the BCS title game yeah. and everything else. You're a big college football fan. So what I said yeah. on this show was, I said, man, and you're down in Florida, so you're completely steeped in this. We're immersed. Immersed. When the moment that Tim Tebow started playing for the Florida Gators, the number yep. one topic, even as a freshman and certainly as a sophomore when he won the Heisman Trophy was, yeah, he's good at college, but is he ever going to translate to the NFL? This was a debate that you could literally have in sports talk radio in the Southeast where people cared about SEC football. Every yep. day for Tim Tebow's entire career, freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior year, and you could open up the phone lines and people would have different opinions. So when I heard all of the Lamar Jackson talk, I said, yeah, that's what we've seen before. We've seen this at a lot of different thing, uh, different positions. I understand the history of the black quarterback, but yep. to me, the NFL is the ultimate meritocracy in America. It's what we should aspire to be like in many ways in so many different aspects of life. If you're good, it doesn't matter anything at all about your past. It's all about what you can do in this moment to make a team more. Matt Jones to wide receiver. That guy couldn't get tackled in SEC football. <laughs> he ran a 4-3 at 6-6. He obviously had major off-field issues, but you remember watching him. Like I don't remember yep. watching a guy who was more frustrating because you're watching him run. He's like Vince Young. Nobody can hit him, but they decide they need to move him to, uh, to wide receiver. Scott Frost uh, moves to, uh, to defensive to back, secondary. I think. Yeah, after winning a Heisman Trophy. You've got lots of guys over the years, regardless of their race. And the point with Tebow is a lot of teams were saying, hey, we want to see him run drills at, at H-back or we want to see him run drills at, at tight end. That's where he really projects at the next level. And Tebow would never do it. And that's to his credit because he said, no, I'm a quarterback. But I, all those guys won Heisman Trophies or were Heisman Trophy caliber athletes as well. And it happened to him regardless. So that's how I kind of came into the Lamar Jackson story. It was almost like people wanted to make an argument that might have made sense in 1985, but doesn't necessarily make sense in 2018. I would agree with you. And I remember Eric Crouch, who won a Heisman Trophy, yes. tweeting about it, saying, stick to your guns, Lamar Jackson. I wish I had done the same thing. Because remember, he got switched when he tried to make it in the NFL. So a number of guys, and, and you're right, it doesn't matter whether they're black, white, striped, or whatever. When you look at what their skill set is, many people have different different thoughts and discussions. I remember when Tim Tebow came to the combine, and there was a big discussion, and I pointed out to people, and again, this isn't just me patting myself on the back. This was something that was relevant. Florida had tried to change his throwing motion while he was in school. They took him to their was the biomechanics lab that they have there at Florida, and you know the stick figure things, and here's your angle, and here's where your foot should be, and I mean they really put him through the mill on all that. And as soon as game started, is like a golfer, he went back to the, the throwing motion that worked best for him because the pressure he hadn't worked it over time, and that's who he was. And by the way, won a national championship, right? <laughs> he won two national championships as a quarterback, won a Heisman was one of the all-time greatest college football players ever. You can't argue with what he was doing in terms of that. Was it going to translate? It didn't matter then. What mattered was him playing in college. Anyway, moving on. Sam Darnold, I wasn't disappointed that he didn't throw because I'm not surprised any year a quarterback says he's not going to throw. We get up in arms. We get crazy about the whole thing because we want to see him throw because we're excited. And then when they don't throw, we, we jump on them. Hey, be a competitor. Wish you would throw. Wish you would do this. And then when he throws at pro day, we don't talk about it anymore because that's what's going to, that's what's going to happen. He's going to throw a pro day. We're going to see it. And if he throws well, we're not going to discuss it. If he throws poorly, we're going to say, I wish he'd thrown the first day because maybe we would have seen something different. 
It's his choice. It's his deal. It's up to him. I suspect, Clay, there's more to it than him just saying, I don't want to throw. You know, maybe his arm hurt and he didn't want to talk about it. Who knows? But we'll see him throw on pro day, and that's where it all comes to fruition for him. And for my impressions of everything, my biggest impression is that for all the quarterbacks that threw, and most of them threw pretty well at the combine, they also threw very carefully. See, we want to see everything that goes with it. We want to see you explode out of your drop, you know, out of the, out of your stance and your drop, three step, five step, set up, throw the ball on time. See all those things. None of those quarterbacks did it. <laughs> they all took the slowest drops you've seen. They all took the most careful drops you've seen, and then they set up and threw the football. Do I blame them? No, they're working with receivers. They don't know. They don't quite trust them on their breaks. They want to make sure they're ready to throw the football. And a lot of times, instead of throwing, anticipating the break, they're making sure they saw the break happen and then throw it. So on any comeback routes, Clay, when the ball is supposed to be caught at 12 yards, a lot of times it was caught at 8 because the quarterback was making sure they had come out of their break and were coming back towards them before they threw the ball. But that's understandable, again, because, again, the trust factor is simply not there because receivers all run things differently until you get to know them. So all in all, I thought the quarterbacks threw well. I thought Mayfield threw well. I thought Josh Allen threw well. Of course, the biggest arm there. Josh Rosen threw it pretty well. He actually skipped one, which we cracked up about because I can't remember last time I saw Josh, Josh Rosen skip the pass. The rest of the time, <laughs> it was fine. Lamar Jackson was extremely careful throwing the football. It was like he did not want that ball to hit the ground at all. I thought he was aiming it. He never really turned it loose. But you know the arm is there, so you don't worry about that a heck of a lot. Uh, Mason Rudolph, the thing about Mason is he is a big, big guy from Oklahoma State, but he doesn't have the arm to match his size. He is not a big-armed guy, and I think that that throws people. People have to get comfortable with that a little bit, but his college numbers were absolutely huge. And then, of course, Darnold did not throw. So those are the big guys we're talking about in terms of what we saw at the combine. Oh, yeah, I forgot Mayfield. Mayfield, I thought, was accurate, sharp, all the things that you've seen on tape. But, again, he was doing the same thing with his drops that everyone else was. But this kid, he eats up bright lights, okay? He does not care. If the, the bigger the light, the brighter the light, the more Mayfield wants it to be there. And I think most people like that in their quarterbacks. We're talking to Charles Davis at CFD22. Is it fair to compare Baker Mayfield to Johnny Manziel? It is in terms of playing rallying a team, how people gravitate towards him. But here's where things are a little bit different. Johnny Manziel was the kid that showed up on Saturday and made magic play. Mayfield's the kid that came in on Sunday and watched the film and then worked it throughout the week. Johnny, you just wanted to get to game day. Mayfield, he was there the entire time getting ready for game day. I'm a lot more comfortable with that guy than I am with the Johnny football. And, and that's and that's what the that's what the main difference is. I know Baker gets tired of the comparisons; he gets upset with them. I understand that, but he's not that, and the pros know that already, and they're finding it out more and more. It's not the same kid by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, he had the off-field issues. Yeah, he threw the flag down at Ohio State. Well, remember the year before Ohio State went to Norman, and didn't they beat the heck out of them? Oh yeah. I mean, they pounded them. So like any kid, you get revenge in a big game, national TV, and after the game, if you want to call it a little over-exuberant, that's fine. As I've said numerous times, the thing that bothered me more was Kansas. Okay, the Kansas kids don't want to shake your hand. Okay, 
that upsets you. I get it. They're not showing the class that, that you're looking for from them and you've been taught to do. All right, fine. I don't know that you need to grab your crotch at them later when you know you're going to beat them 800 to nothing anyway. <laughs> right. That that was my biggest issue. Is like, go get your four touchdown pass and get your ball cap and come hang out over here and then laugh at them. They're barely playing college football. Why are you worried about that? I think that's where he's getting drilled more with the NFL than anything else. They don't want to be Don Quixote, Clay. They don't want him sleeping in shadows. They want tilting in windmills. If he quits doing that, I think he's got everything you're looking for. But, you know, no more snarky tweets when my colleague Bucky Brooks puts a coaching analysis out about you. If you hear my voice right now, Baker, and, and, and you should know better because you know me and we spent our time together, you know, don't don't throw one at me about I don't doubt me. Don't do it. We know that. Keep the chip on your shoulder, but you don't need a boulder. Just, just go play. Love the Don Quixote reference early in the morning here from Charles Davis at CFD22. All of that analysis is fantastic. If you were advising the Cleveland Browns, they brought you in and they said, okay, we've decided we're going to take a quarterback at one. Who is your guy that you are convinced at one would be worth it for the Cleveland Browns? Here's the problem everyone runs into, and it's one I run into in my life, is the John Maynard Keynes play. We live our lives, and I'm paraphrasing, we live our lives making decisions about which we will be least criticized for doing, right? So, so well said. Especially in right? a social media era, there are yeah. so many people every day who worry about what everybody else is going to think. And so instead of taking a risk and, and, and taking a chance to shine brightly, we all many times make the decision that draws the least attention and the most praise, even if it's not the right decision for us. Yes, and I wake up every day battling that myself. Yep. Okay. What is it going to be? What is the right thing? You've got a Cleveland Browns team that has gotten better, even though the record doesn't show it. you got a Cleveland Browns team that needs someone to rally around, and Mayfield's the type of kid that people rally around like crazy. I would really be struggling not to take him to be my starting quarterback. That's where I would be with, with Cleveland. Now, I don't believe that he's going to be in the running to be that guy. I think ultimately it comes down to Sam Darnold and Josh Allen. That's what I think is going to be in Cleveland. That's without any conversation with John Dorsey or anyone in the Cleveland franchise. I'm just looking at past history, how John Dorsey's been in drafts, you know, the type of guy that I believe that he is. Mayfield would be a harder sell, quote-unquote, for himself. And I'm not sure it would be a harder sell for the Cleveland fans. They just want someone who's going to win some darn football games. But he would be my guy because, in my experience, i found that adults, when they spend time with him, are cool with Baker Mayfield, and kids love Baker Mayfield. With Manziel, since we're going back to that comparison, kids liked Manziel, adults couldn't stand him. It was a, it was a whole different ball game there. I think Mayfield rallies people, and he works his butt off, even though there's times you're just like, Baker, knock it off. And that's about it. So he would be my guy, but I do believe it's going to come down to Darnold or Josh Allen to be, to be the top pick for Cleveland. We've seen what's happened the last two years with Zeke Elliott and with Leonard Fournette and also with Alvin Kamara, a guy I know you watched play at Tennessee a lot. How Not, good... not as much as we needed to. <laughs> By the way, what do you think about Butch going to Bama? Have you seen him in the Bama gear now? I, I did, and I saw two of the greatest pictures I've seen in the last couple of days. One, Butch standing there with Nick Saban, just the yeah. two of them. Yes. And the other, the other my favorite, 
is Bill Belichick and, and, and Butch standing there next to each other. And what I, I loved I about thought, that. I thought those were outstanding. What <laughs> I loved about the Butch with Belichick picture was Butch was talking. And I'm like, yeah. if you get close to Bill Belichick, you just try to soak up whatever thing he could possibly tell you. I would love to have a transcript of, uh, of that discussion. Is Saquon Barkley every bit as good, if not better, in your mind than what those guys have meant on the field? How good was he at the combine, and how good could he be at the right situation in the NFL? If quarterbacks weren't the premium pick that they are, he would be the number one pick in this year's draft. And there's still discussion that he might be. Because, you know, a lot of people are trying to manipulate Cleveland to, hey, take Barkley one and then get your quarterback at four. Yep. Well, you and I both know that that sounds great, but what if you only have two quarterbacks that you're interested in that you think are the right ones? You take Barkley at one, the Giants maybe take a quarterback at two. That's not out of the realm. Or they deal out of that pick. Indianapolis deals out of that pick, and all of a sudden you're sitting there at four, and none of the quarterbacks you like are gone. So it's a, it's a tough, it's a conundrum there for, for John Dorsey and Cleveland. But Barkley coming into it, we knew he was everything. Clay, we've seen the viral videos of him power cleaning, right? 405 yes. or whatever it was. We saw him squatting over six hundred. So you knew he was strong. You watched him play. You knew he was fast. You knew he was this. You knew he was that. And then he exceeded everything at the combine. I mean, he, he, he vertical 41. He ran 4041. He he benched 29 times at 225 pounds. You know, he left he left a tall building in a single bound. <laughs> he did everything. And when you watched it and compared it to his peers across the board at 233 pounds, mind you. So your your size, you know, your your, your ratios and all that, that that I never could get right in school, I knew were off the charts. So for a guy who exceeded everything, plus he's an incredible young man. I mean, the marks for him are off the charts for character and, and, and presence and everything else. He's the best player in the draft, so it makes sense. How are we going to figure this out? That's why the Giants might take him at two. You know, That's why the Browns could easily take him at one, and you couldn't heavily criticize him for it. He did everything and probably exceeded it, and that's almost stunning because you know, we, we chart these guys to within an inch of their life, and for them to exceed expectations, that's really something. We're talking to Charles Davis at CFD22. Appreciate you getting up early with us. Uh, go tell him thanks for the time this morning. Voice of Madden and also NFL Network calls games for Fox Sports. Uh, last question for you. You are a huge reader. I enjoy seeing your book recommendations on Twitter yeah. at CFD22. A lot of people coming into spring break. Maybe they're going away somewhere warm. Maybe they're taking a trip. Who you got for us? What should they be paying attention to? What's out there that's worth diving into? Oh, God, my, my favorites are anything by Harlan Coben. Grab Brad Thor, who's, who's, who's just incredible. Um, I just got done reading Ed Henry's book on uh, Jackie Robinson called 42 Faith, yep. which tells about how Branch Rickey came to his decision to, to decide to sign Jackie Robinson and start to integrate, integrate baseball. And it's much more than just, you know, you know, you know the, the, the great – it's not mythology, but the great story is, you know, well, he had this conviction, he was raised, and there was way more to it than that. And for both of them, what the struggles were, how they had to be in it together, what they had to do. And some of the stuff people would know, but there are plenty of things in there that people wouldn't know. So I would, I would urge everybody, if you're, if you're a baseball fan, if you're a fan of history, go grab that bad boy right now. 
That is uh, fantastic tips, as always. Appreciate the time. Have a good weekend, my man, and hopefully uh, Tennessee basketball can keep it up. I'm headed to St. Louis as soon as I finish the show this morning, so we'll see what happens uh, in the SEC basketball tournament. Have a great time in St. Louis, and here's the only thing I think about for Tennessee, which I hate, but it's a true, true thing. In a year where they and Auburn win the SEC, Kentucky was quote-unquote down, right? Yep. I'd love for both of them to have nice runs in the NCAA. Otherwise, it comes right back to, oh, so you want to win Kentucky with that? You know, we don't, yes. we don't need that hassle. I want to see them have a great one. You have a terrific one, Clay, and bring your boys by and come visit us at Madden when you come to the Oh, area. I got to tell you, when I told them that I knew the guy who was calling the game, they were like, I texted you this, but they, 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 it's, yeah. you know how kids are. They don't get impressed I by do. anything that dad says or does. It doesn't matter what you do. Barack Obama's girls, I'm sure they were like, yeah, so what, dad? You're <laughs> yeah, the president yeah, of the so United what? States. He's the president. You, yeah, you can't <laughs> tell us who we should be dating for prom. You know, you know how it is. Doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. If your dad, nobody, dad never knows anything. They were like, "Wow, really? You know him?" I mean, it was unbelievable. So you made me cool well, for you, a couple minutes there. Well, when you're you and your family make that vacation, you know you got a full invitation. Okay, I appreciate it, my man. That is Charles right. Davis at CFD22. Go follow him on Twitter. Fantastic follow. Great. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com and within the iHeartRadio app. And so I believe we have him now, Donald Henderson, who has come on graciously our show. He works at the Royal Tyrell Museum in Alberta, Canada. And Mr. Henderson, Professor Henderson, I appreciate you coming on. I'm just going to hit you with the gusto right out of the jump here. You are the foremost authority on whether or not giraffes can swim. I suppose so, since I'm the only one that's done it. So, you, so first of all, how do you become a curator of dinosaurs? This sounds like, like my kids, if I told them they could be anything in the world, curator of dinosaurs sounds like an amazing uh, job title. How do you end up doing what you do? Um, well, I've always liked rocks and animals ever since I was a little kid. And I ended up getting a degree in geology and geophysics, but I still was interested in paleontology. And then I went to graduate school and got a PhD in vertebrate paleontology. And um, I just worked really hard and and did publish some interesting science and made a name for myself. And then when the job came up, I got hired. What is your favorite dinosaur? I think it has to. Be, it's a tough choice between Stegosaurus and Brachiosaurus. All right, I'm familiar with the Stegosaurus. Uh, what is it about those two that make that the mo- that make those dinosaurs your favorites? You're most interested. I like Stegosaurus because it's just so weird. It's got these unbelievable big plates on the back of it on its back, and it's got those awesome spikes on the end of the tail, and then it's got an absolutely tiny brain. It just ever since I was little, I thought it just looked so bizarre. And I so, like Brachiosaurus because it's so big. It's, it's huge. It, Brachiosaurus is like bigger than a Brontosaurus. Is that accurate or, or how yeah. big would it be? Yeah, okay. It would so, probably be about four, 40 feet. The head's like 40 feet above the ground. 40 feet above that. So this is crazy. Like, and now you got into, and this is fascinating, like computer simulations because the other question we had was could dinosaurs swim? And I was like, I, I have no idea. I mean, obviously, we know that some animals that lived like partly in the marine uh, life and obviously otherwise on the on the land could swim. But like a gig- like a Tyrannosaurus rex, like your theory is that a Tyrannosaurus rex, even with those short arms and sort of an odd shaped body, would have been able to swim. 
Yes, I've I've actually done. I made like three dimensional models, and I put lungs in them, and I a lot of dinosaurs have air sacs as well in their bodies. And um, yeah, they're they're really light, and they float with the head above the water, so the animal could swim. And the way their hind legs work, they could basically do like a type of dog paddle, or almost like pedaling a bicycle. And um, yeah, they could probably manage. How often do you think a Tyrannosaurus Rex would have swam? Not very often. Like They're in a flood? Really... Like is that the only time they would have really ever managed to end up in water that would have been deep enough for them to need to swim? Yeah, I think it's more a case of they're being a bit unstable, you know, maybe tending to tip to the side. Um, and if you look at their bodies, they're not really meant for swimming. They're kind of chunky, and they haven't got webbed feet or anything. Um, but most animals can, can paddle a little bit, and, like, pigs can swim. Uh, and, yeah, so, it, it is an interesting question, because that's too. We were debating whether or not there's this cow that had been fleeing from a, being killed, uh, and it had fled to an island. Um, and uh, and we got into a debate, and my theory was that all animals probably could swim because at some point in time there would have been a flood, there would have been something where they would have been challenged with it. You have done all these uh, these mock-ups and models and everything else, and one of the most fascinating debates we got into was whether or not a giraffe could swim. What's your research tell you about whether, whether or not giraffes can swim? Um, well, it was people noticed that Giraffes didn't seem to like to go, go into water, and they were loath to go in. And so I actually I made my model, and I started calculating, how, would it float? Yes, it does, but it floats in a really awkward way, and it would be tough for them to breathe. But a real problem is their legs are so long, and to try and push, pull that leg through the water, the, the drag on the leg, the re- water resistance is just huge. And the giraffe would quickly just become exhausted trying to swim. Um, we're talking. We're talking to uh, Donald Henderson. He is the curator of dinosaurs at the Tyrell Museum. He is solving all of our animal-related controversies and questions surrounding their swimming abilities. What animal were you stunned to find out could swim really well that you didn't anticipate? Um, I guess I was surprised. So I did a paper a couple of years ago about sauropod dinosaurs, so the long neck things like Brontosaurus. Yeah. I found they float. Um, they're a bit unstable, but if they could touch bottom, they could just punt along. Uh, no problem. That was a huge surprise. Why did they float? Because their bodies are full of air sacs. Interesting. Um, so like birds today have a very sophisticated lung. They have the normal lung, and then they've got the system of air sacs to pump air really efficiently through their lungs and it's pretty sure now that sauropod dinosaurs had a similar breathing system to breathe through that long neck they would have needed a super efficient lung so having all these air cavities and lungs in their body makes them float like a cork and um yeah so they they just punt along no problem do you think we'll ever be able to bring through cloning or any other method maybe the the michael crichton from jurassic park uh, idea of extracting dinosaur DNA. Do you think we will ever be able to bring dinosaurs back to life? Um, based on the evidence so far, I have to say no. The DNA molecule, you know, it's really big, but it's, it's quite fragile, and it just it's chemically unstable over millions and tens of millions of years. So you can get DNA, but it's just isolated little chunks and fragments. You can't really do much with it. So it's a great, fun idea, 
but I don't think the fossil record's going to be that good. What about other animals that are closer to our, our recent past, say the woolly mammoth or the saber-toothed tiger, animals that have gone extinct but are not as far away? Is the DNA less degraded in those kind of animals? Do you think we could bring any of those back? Yes, I think that's, that's, that's doable, especially frozen mammoths and animals from the tundra, like in Siberia or northern Canada. Um, I think there's a real chance that we could bring bring them back. And mammoths are closely related to living Indian elephant. So if you wanted to do some genetic trickery, you could maybe do something with Indian elephant genes and mammoth genes and have a mammoth come back. We that would be pretty awesome. We are talking with uh we are talking with Donald Henderson. He's the curator of dinosaurs at the Tyrell Museum in Alberta. Uh, all right, I'm also kind of curious here in general um, with you were talking about like bringing them back to life and uh, or I was and asking those kind of questions. Why do you think dinosaurs retain such a fascination in our culture and our world today? I, someone said it big, fierce and extinct. So there are these amazing, dangerous creatures, but they're safely away in time from us. They, they're not a real threat. And but I also think they're just on average they're ten times bigger than the animals today, and it's the continents were different in the past. They could support populations, and I think people are just fascinated that animals could get so big and look so so bizarre. And then when you think that they're 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 living relatives like crocodiles and birds, you know we're kind of used to them. But you think they're they're closely related to these weird things from the past. I think it's the mystery of them and just the amazement that something like that could exist. What do you think killed the dinosaurs? What's the most popular current theory? I might be out of date because I've been out of school for a long time. What's the most recent theory as to why the dinosaurs died? Like 99.9% people like the asteroid impact. The Yucatan Peninsula asteroid, it hits down in Mexico, and then that just basically shuts down the existing life in many respects, and and, and the, the dinosaurs die out as a result. Yeah, the other nice thing about that is it wasn't just the dinosaurs that went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous. All sorts of other animals went extinct all over the world, land and sea, freshwater, terrestrial environments. The only thing that could kill globally really quickly would be the, the dust cloud and all the side effects from an asteroid impact. None of the other old ideas worked as well. How did alligators and crocodiles survive that uh, level of destruction in the world? It's been noticed that things that lived in freshwater weren't as severely affected as things on land or in the oceans. And also crocs and, and alligators can actually hibernate a bit. That's why you can find them you know, up quite far north of Florida um, they can tolerate a bit of cool weather for a few months, and it's thought that that's how they survive. The same way lizards and snakes and turtles, like all these smaller reptiles that can hibernate and you know hide away for a month or two while things are bad, and then come back out. So we're talking. I think that, I think that was a secret for the alligators. You said ninety-nine point nine percent of them agreed with that. What's the other point one? Um, there's a suspiciously very close to the end of the Cretaceous, there were some major volcanic eruptions in India called the Deccan Traps. And just millions of cubic miles of lava were suddenly erupted, and it would have produced all sorts of nasty gases into the atmosphere and dust. Um, And so there's a small group of people that are pushing for this as the cause of the extinction. But there was recent studies that showed that 
volcanic eruption happened a few hundred thousand or maybe I think a few million or million years just before the asteroid. So there's just a couple of noisy people pushing that idea, but the thing that really turns that idea off is that in between all these lava flows, there was time for soil to develop, and you've actually found dinosaur nests with eggs in between these layers of lava. So if these eruptions were so bad, how come the dinosaurs kept coming back to lay eggs? Hmm, that's fascinating. We're talking with Donald Henderson. He's a curator of dinosaurs at Tyrell Museum in Alberta, Canada. Um, do you believe, like you, you've studied these fantastic beasts for uh, much of your life, I would imagine, the dinosaurs, yeah. you've become an expert in them. Do you believe there are any animals still alive of substantial size on our planet that we have not uncovered? Like a conspiracy thing, do you believe in, maybe not conspiracy, but do you believe in the Loch Ness Monster or do you believe in uh, the, uh, the the abominable snowman, you know, like the Bigfoot? Is there any animal out there you think in our modern society that is of substantial size, because I'm sure there's small animals that we still have not cataloged and discovered, that is still alive, that has not been decide, uh, discovered by modern science? There's certainly millions of insects to be discovered, and there's like new fish discovered every week. But I think on land and in lakes and rivers, I think we've pretty much got all the big stuff. In the oceans, I think it's a different story. Um, I think there's there's all these reports of sightings of large mysterious type fish things or giant squid or um, giant octopus. The oceans are, it's really hard for us to explore the oceans. You know, it's dark and it's cold and we can't handle those pressures and stuff. I think the oceans are seriously underexplored. Um, and I think if we're going to find anything, any surprises, um, it will be in the oceans. Um, when I was a kid for the longest time, even into my 20s, I really thought the Loch Ness Monster was, could be real. But then I learned that that body of water, same like the Finger Lakes in New York, there was, um, there was people talked about uh, some sort of lake monster in, in New York State. Um, these lakes didn't exist before the last ice age. So where were these things during the ice age? Um, so as much as I would like to have a plesiosaur alive, like Loch Ness Monster or that thing from uh, New York, um, I'm afraid they, they really are gone. So no Loch Ness Monster. Uh, we also got into a big debate, and this is our final question for you, uh, on how like animals move from one continent to another. And there are obviously lots of monkeys in Africa, uh, and they have been there for a long time, and I think their base is in Africa. But also there are monkeys that are in South America, um, and they've kind of spread a little bit into Florida because everything lives in Florida now. Uh, and there's all these different theories about how the monkeys got from Africa to Latin America. And one of them is just the theory that somehow they ended up on a vegetative raft, which I, I just find impossible to believe. Have you ever studied how like these animals spread from one continent to another? Do you have any theories about how we ended up with monkeys in, for instance, Brazil? Yeah, it, well, it's not my idea. Um, yeah. People have known for a long time that, you know, the continents are moving around, and Africa and South America used to be joined together in yes. Jurassic. And so they've been moving apart. They're still moving apart. So I think a long time, you know, tens of millions of years ago when the continents were closer, it is reasonable to think that things got on rafts of vegetation washed out to sea in floods. Um, You've got to think, how did animals get to the Galapagos Islands from South America? Like from 
Peru and Ecuador and those places. And they have found lizards and bugs and stuff on rafts of vegetation being washed out to sea. So I think it's perfectly reasonable if the currents and winds are right, you can get, you know, animals being transported across narrow ocean gaps. I don't think they could do it today. But certainly in the past, when they were closer, it's perfectly reasonable. We're talking to Donald Henderson. He is the curator of dinosaurs at the Tyrell Museum in Alberta, Canada. You mentioned that into your 20s, you thought maybe the Loch Ness Monster was possible until you realized that the lakes were not there since prehistoric times. Is there any current wild scientific theory, because everybody has different theories of all sorts of things out there, that is maybe not in the mainstream that you believe is true? Because to be fair... Years and years ago, the idea that a that a uh, asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs was considered kind of a harebrained scheme of a theory of an idea, right? And then they find this location in the Yucatan Peninsula in, in Mexico, and they say, wow, look at the timing on this. Maybe it did actually end up an asteroid hitting Earth and, and knocking and killing all of uh, all of the major beasts of uh, of dinosaurs that were on the uh, on the planet at the time. Is there anything that you think scientifically is not necessarily the mainstream theory right now that you believe. Sort of a, not a conspiracy theory, but a less popular than the norm theory that you believe is true in the world of science right now. I'm trying to think of some. Um, there's, well, at least lately I've become interested in how, how did life originate on Earth. Yeah. And, and some people have suggested you know, Mars used to be wet. It had rivers and oceans but then its atmosphere and water leaked away. So it seems like Mars was had, could have the possibility to produce life before Earth did, because Earth took a long time to cool down, because it's bigger. Some people, and we often find Martian meteorites here on Earth, and some people have suggested, what if life got started on Mars first, and then there was an asteroid impact on Mars, it knocked out chunks, and chunks of Martian rock carrying microbes came to Earth, and started life here. So you might say that we're like Martians. We're all Martians, yeah. I think that's a really fun idea. Um, It would need more testing. You know, can microbes and organic compounds survive, travel through space? Some can. And, um, yeah, it's a really interesting idea. And we'll just have to wait and see. Once we get get people on Mars, they can start looking at the rocks properly. I'll bet large sums of money we'll find fossils on Mars. That would be pretty wild to start finding animal fossils on on Mars. That's actually really cool to think about. Um, The the robots we've got sending there now are pretty good, but they're not really set up for exploring for fossils. Wow. That's great to think about, what kind of life might have been on Mars. Uh, Thank you for the time. Uh, I appreciate uh, you spending Friday morning with us. It's Donald Henderson. He's the curator of dinosaurs at the Tyrell Museum in Alberta. Thanks for the time, my man. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. Casey Smith joins us now at KYC Smith, as she does every single Friday. She's on a bachelorette party down in uh, Charleston. You know what you need on the bachelorette party, Casey? You need a Canadian dinosaur expert to just come in instead of strippers. You just come in and like just dominate that room by answering every dinosaur question everybody could possibly have. Like, I can't believe that there's an actual job title of a Canadian dinosaur expert. Like, I don't know how you get that in life, but that's awesome. I have no idea how I'm going to follow this interview up. But, yes, if he wants to come to Charleston, South Carolina, and sit in a room full of drunk girls, 
uh, I'm sure everybody would welcome it because that sounds much more interesting than a male stripper. I'm going to be completely honest. Uh, so how many girls are on the Charleston Bachelorette Party? And so far, how would you assess the vibe of the Charleston Bachelorette Party? So there are nine of us, and all of us are from Texas and now kind of spread out across the country. So we came to Charleston, like most of us have never been here because it's kind of like the new upcoming Bachelorette spot, I guess. Like, I guess it's like trying to be like Nashville. Yes. So we went out last night wearing stuff that we would normally wear out in New York City or Texas or L.A. or wherever. And apparently that's not what you do in Charleston, at least on a chilly Thursday night, because we stuck out like a dinosaur expert probably would in a room for the girls. Like people <laughs> stared at us like, what, like do people, do these people know that it's cold outside? But we are having a great time. It's, it's fun, but we definitely stand out here. There's no doubt. Charleston is an awesome town. Are you guys all in one room, like one house? Are you in a, hotel, a bunch of series of hotel rooms? What's the, uh, what's the accommodation situation? We have an Airbnb like right outside of downtown. And of course we have a pool that we're not going to be able to use because it's too cold outside, but we thought ahead and got the pool, but we just kind of piled in a house because it's easier that way. But downtown is great, at least from what we've seen so far. Like it's an awesome town. There's no doubt. And I can't, I'm sure during the summer, it's like absolutely insane here because it is beautiful. It's just a little bit chilly right now, but being from Boston and New York right now, this is normal for me, which is why I was wearing a small dress. Cause it's like, <laughs> it's warm for me down here. This is fine. How many bachelorette? I've been on a ton of bachelorette parties uh, over sorry, bachelor parties over the years. I wish I'd been to a ton of bachelorette well, parties. You, have you been to a, yeah, I was, at a bachelorette party? <laughs> I used to strip in my in my previous existence. I was the worst uh, bachelorette party stripper ever. But um, how many bachelorette parties have you been to in your life? Uh, probably at this point, like. I don't know, between 7 and 10, I guess. All right, so, so how would you rank those bachelorette parties in terms of sheer fun? Because I think as you get older, so it's interesting for like a bachelor party, right? As you get older, you have more money, so you can do like higher-end things. Because I had somebody, for instance, who just got married last year, and I'm 38. So if you're around 38 years old and you're just getting married, it's a big difference between doing that and getting married when you're like 24 or 25, which a lot of people still do as well. So how would you assess the trajectory of your bachelorette party experience? Do they get better with age or worse with age? They get better with age because of the money. You're absolutely right. Like nobody's like penny pinching at dinner. Like in my late 20s, everybody has the money to go out and have a good time. But in your early 20s, at least for bachelorette parties, it's like who can be the raunchiest? Like, you know, they get all like the little like penis, like popsicles and all that stuff. And it's like, what are we doing here? But at the time you think it's great. So I guess it's like the trajectory of having fun and like spending money goes up, but the raunchiness goes down. So I guess it depends on what you're looking for. I prefer the late 20s bachelorette parties, but I know some of my girlfriends are upset that there's not, you know, penis necklaces to wear out. So I guess it just depends on what kind of fun you're looking for. All right. So I'm not going to put anybody on blast here, but what is the most risque thing that is scheduled for this bachelorette party in Charleston? Do they have male strip clubs? Do you have any strippers? Like what is it? And you don't, you know, look, things can happen that you're not really planning. Obviously that's one of the fun, uh, fun things about being on a bachelor bachelorette party, but what is a scheduled event that is the most risque? Well, I don't know very much because I'm going to be honest, I didn't help schedule this because I'm not good at it, so they just keep me out of it. They just go send me to the liquor store to get alcohol, but <laughs> apparently this morning, which is part of the reason that I'm already awake, apparently we have to be awake and dressed at 9 o'clock for a visitor that's bringing alcohol, and I feel like I might be about to witness a male stripper with like a Bloody Mary mimosa bar. That's what my like feeling is because at 9 a.m. on a Friday, there's no way that you're not having at least drinks, but it's like one of those things where it's like, Guys, don't come down in like your, you know, your pajamas. You've got to be dressed, but make sure you're ready to start drinking heavily. So I feel like 
we're about to witness something that's groundbreaking because a male stripper and a mimosa bar I've never heard of, but I think Charleston might be bringing that to light for me. Also, what about the male stripper? I think you have to give some props to a male stripper who's showing up to strip at 9 a.m. Like, he's waking (laughs) up, he's rolling out of bed, and also, from your perspective, what's the sexiest male stripper outfit? In other words, what can you start in? Is it the cop? Is it, like, the cowboy uh, I know you're a Dallas Cowboy fan, so not like Dak Prescott, like an actual, you know, like cowboy hat cowboy. Like fireman, what is the what is the look that you find most exhilarating in the male stripper in terms of like fantasy role play? This is probably an unpopular thing to say, but I am just not into the whole male stripping thing. Like I find it funnier for the person that's getting the lap dance like at a bachelorette party than I actually find it like sexy. I don't know. Like, Magic Mike, obviously, that's different, right? Like, that's Channing Tatum. Like, everybody loves him. But for some reason, I can't stop laughing with male strippers because usually the girls are so uncomfortable. Like, if the girls weren't as uncomfortable as they are, it would probably be like, okay, like, we can all get into this. But everybody that gets a a lap dance from a male stripper that I've been around is so awkwardly uncomfortable that I'm just like, all I can do is laugh at this point. So I don't know. Like, maybe I've just been in the wrong places, but I'm just – I'm really not into it. And I know that's probably an unpopular thing to say, but – I think I'd prefer to see like female strippers than male strippers in this setting. Join the club. By the way, fireman <laughs> is the right answer. The fireman is the hottest the of fireman. the male strippers, I think. I think, yeah, like he's coming to put a fire out. I mean, that, that's a good look. I can, I can buy into that. I've watched a lot of porn movies where that's the star. Uh, <laughs> all, all right. So, um, and by the way, we got a lot of firemen who listen this morning. I, apologies to the police guys. You're not as hot as the firemen, I don't think, for the average bachelorette. Why party. is that? Why is that that firemen are seen? Because, like, firemen, like, actual firemen as their job, like, are always seen as, like, the sexiest of the employment like calendars are made with that why is that well they have a big hose uh which is a a nice double (laughs) on top right (laughs) yeah there you go (laughs) so they show up with a big hose uh they literally put out fires they are like responsive at a moment's notice right like those guys are like sleeping and in bed and then the next minute things like go off like for instance i was writing about this the other day somebody wrote in and they're like have you heard about this sex robot trend like the sex yes. robot is starting to take over and like the women and somebody wrote in they're like is the it's sex terrifying. robot yeah is the sex robot cheating and and I was like well I mean first of all it's a little bit weird to obviously have a sex robot and and then they were like do you would you be offended if your wife had a sex robot and I was like well I don't think I would come home and my wife would just be going to town with like the sex robot. <laughs> I think what's more likely is that most women out there would use their sex robot to do things that they wish their husbands or boyfriends did instead. So I feel like I would come home and like the sex robot would be like watching my three year old to make sure that like he doesn't do something, you know, to get himself in trouble, right? Like you just got the <laughs> sex robot set, set up. Or she could set the sex robot to like pick up laundry or like just, you know, like do household chores, like all the cook. I think all of those things are more attractive to my wife than having a sex robot. Whereas for guys, I can see the sex robot making sense because you just have like this <clears throat> good-looking, in theory, woman who you don't have to worry about anything other than having sex with, right? So like you don't have to worry about like whether she's upset. You don't have to worry about having conversations. Here's the other thing. I think I could come home and my wife could just be like hanging out with the sex robot, just complaining about things. So the sex robot would listen to her, right? Like she's just sitting on the couch like, and then he did this. And then why is he so bad? Like, and it's just like the sex robot is a psychologist for women. So I think the difference there, but do you think it would be cheating? Like if your boyfriend had a sex robot, would you be like, yeah, I'm not really into this. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it cheating because there's not, like, a pulse. But at the same yes. time, like, like if you are in a relationship with somebody and they feel the need to go get a sex robot, 
like it's probably time to break up. Like either you're not doing something right or they're just out of their minds. Because I feel like if you're in a, like a true relationship, especially before you get married, right? I'm not married, so I know things change. But if you're just dating somebody, like that's supposed to be like the time you're having like the most sex and all that stuff before, like why would you need a sex robot? Like, I would just think he's a weirdo and I'd break up with him. Yeah, it seems weird that you would have a sex robot if you're a single guy. I think it's definitely weirder. Um, we're talking to Casey Smith at KYC Smith. She's on a bachelor party in Charleston. So, let's go. You're just moving to New York, but you're having to leave behind the Boston Celtics in the midst of their run. Do you think the Celtics can win the NBA title this year, or is it all just kind of an elaborate ritual until Gordon Hayward comes back and maybe next year is the year the Celtics take the next step? I definitely don't think they can win the NBA Finals this year because even if they were to make it there, they'd have to play the Golden State Warriors more than likely. And I just think that it's still such a, a step to have to be able to compete with them. I think that they can make a run at the Eastern Conference Finals. I just don't know if this team is built for a seven-game series against LeBron James. And I know that there are other teams like Washington and Toronto that can be in that mix as well. But they're obviously in Boston better than they were last year with Isaiah Thomas, Kyrie Irving, is a superstar, but you mentioned it right there. Gordon Hayward is that missing piece, I think, that they knew they needed in the offseason and unfortunately aren't going to get back because of that injury. I think that they're definitely a better team. They've taken that next step. But to say that they can compete, even getting to the finals or to win the finals, I think a lot of Boston fans want to believe that. I don't think that's reality this year, but they're a really fun team to watch. So it'll be fun to see what they can do in the postseason. Did you watch the Aggie game against Alabama and see the running shot that Colin uh, Colin Sexton hit to beat the Aggies on behalf of Alabama? I saw. I didn't see it happen. I saw it afterwards, and I was like, "Oh my god!" This would again. I've told you this before, and like Aggies understand, you can never have anything nice. Like if you're an A and M fan, and you think this is the best basketball team they've had in years, that would happen to them in that moment it's just like it's heartbreaking but it doesn't surprise me at this point because we can never have anything nice but it was a hell of a shot there's no doubt no doubt at all Casey uh good luck with the big surprise in 20 minutes in Charleston uh you can update us on Twitter at KYC Smith go follow her thank you for getting up early with us and have a good time with the girls in uh, Charleston no problem I'll send you pictures play ah yes exciting things to look forward to You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. The best athletes don't just play the game, they change it. When it comes to investing, GameBridge is doing the same. Their online platform does things differently because it's designed to put you in charge of growing your own savings. It's intuitive, it's easy, and best of all, it's on your terms. No wonder GameBridge has earned the trust of 40% repeat customers. It's a better way to invest because it's investing your way. Get started today with as little as $1,000 at GameBridge.io. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.
Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast.